everyone, Carol here with Jeremiah's Call Ministries, JCM, and I just want to welcome you back to our series on Revelation. Today we are covering chapter 20. And I got to tell you, going back through chapter 20 again, I was reminded how detailed and perhaps complicated it can be. We've done this series before during COVID lockdown, and we did it just on uh, a vid- as a little short video series. And even then, I remember it just took a while to go through. But boy, just preparing for this episode, I was reminded again how complicated it can be because it just requires explanation about so many different things. First of all, it requires an explanation about what's called the millennium or the thousand year reign of Christ, which is hotly debated. It's a hotly debated issue. And so therefore, because it is so hotly debated, I'm creating a separate episode specifically on the thousand year reign of Christ. If you want to listen to it after this episode, uh, when we post it, go for it. If you don't, uh, don't feel like you have to, you can go straight to chapter 21. But uh, it does require a lot of explanation, too much explanation to even put into this chapter. So, but there's that, you've got the mention of Satan being bound and then Satan being released and you're trying to figure out, now why did God re-release him? There's the mention of thrones, there's the mention of uh, two different resurrections, there's a battle, there's the judgment seat of Christ. And so (laughs) it's just taken me a while. I feel like to compile all these details and try to communicate them in a a very simple manner, because that's always been our goal with Revelation. Keep it simple. There are so many different theological trails you can go down that take you down into (laughs) an abyss of eschatology. And sometimes you feel like you never come to the end of that. And, you know, I just came to a point in my journey that I stopped doing that and I just try to keep it simple. So that's hopefully what you'll get out of this episode and strongly encourage you, you know, if you want to go down those trails um, and look at all the other theological points, that's wonderful. So go for it. But our aim today is try to keep all of these details, all of these things that are brought up into this specific chapter, simple. And so, like I said, I'm doing chapter 20 today. I'm going to just do that chapter by itself without going into the different theological views on the thousand year millennial reign, which that will be a separate episode. Again, that whole pre-millennialism, amillennialism, all that separate of this. Okay. So let's start with chapter 20. I'm going to read this chapter. It's a little long, of course, um, but just bear with me and try to pay attention to a lot of the details that are brought up in this. Chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Well, like I said, there's a lot there. But one thing to definitely point out in this chapter is the mention of a thousand years. I believe it's mentioned like six times by the time you get just to verse 10. And so the question that people have when arriving to this part of Revelation is, is it a literal thousand years? Is it symbolic? What does it really mean? That's what that extra episode is going to describe. We're going to go into it a bit here on a practical level, but get into more of the theological stuff in a separate episode. But first, um, let's recap something really important, if you don't mind, from Revelation, since we've been on this journey together, um, that there have been these four enemies of God, three key enemies, and then a big entity that have all been against God. Number one is the dragon, which is Satan. And then the two beasts, the Antichrist and false prophet, which are already thrown into the lake of fire. And then, of course, Mystery Babylon, this system that really prostituted itself with the world and drew many nations and people into sin. Well, three have been dealt with, leaving only one more, Satan. And the opening of chapter 20 addresses him, addresses this very thing. In fact, it kicks off the fourth of the seven visions that John describes at the end of the book. The fourth vision is in this chapter, of course, is about Satan. The fifth vision is in this chapter. It's about the millennium, those thousand years. And then the sixth vision at the end of this chapter is about the judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. So let's start with the fourth vision. It's actually in verses one through three. An angel, of course, is coming out of heaven. That's important to bind up Satan in chains for a thousand years. The angel is coming down out of heaven, into this atmosphere. So we can assume that the opening scene is going to be taking place on the earth. And this angel is coming into the earth's atmosphere for this specific assignment to bind Satan because earth is where his kingdom is. He was cast out of heaven in Revelation 12. It says that this angel comes down with the key to the bottomless pit. 
So Satan is not going to be bound or cast out by God or by Jesus, but by another angel. And remember, Satan himself, he originated in heaven. He too was heavenly, a heavenly angelic being at one point. Now, the text doesn't say which angel is going to carry out this responsibility. Um, some assume it could be another archangel, like maybe Michael or something, but we don't know. But whoever it is, the event is described in thoroughness. The angel lays hold of him. The angel binds him in chains. The angel then casts him into a bottomless pit, which nobody knows where that is or what that even looks like. The angel shuts it up. The angel sets a seal on it. And then this is this place where he's sent is not to be touched for a thousand years. But that's not the end of his story. Because in this chapter, we read that he is re-released again after a thousand years. And we'll have to ask ourselves, why? And we'll get to that. So the earth will now be free of the devil for a thousand years. So imagine, imagine the world free of the devil, of the Antichrist, of the false prophet. It has never known such a time except during the account of creation pre-serpent in the garden. And so what's going to happen is with those figures gone, it leaves a huge political vacuum. Keep in mind, not not according to what we've read in scripture, and that's what I go by, not all the inhabitants of the world have been killed. Not all were killed in Armageddon, only those involved in the army. So apparently there are still people alive during this time, believe it or not. So who is going to get a hold of the situation? Who is going to govern the world? Well, the answer is Jesus. He's come back to reign. And he's not going to do it himself. If you go back to chapter 5 of Revelation, there are beautiful songs and, and proclamations taking place, glorifying the Son, glorifying the Lamb. And one of those proclamations says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Means to rule. Furthermore, in one of the seven letters, it says, He who overcomes will rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's exactly the same phrase that's applied to Jesus himself in scripture. So Jesus and his saints, overcoming believers, are going to reign. They are going to fill that vacuum. They are going to constitute the new government on the earth for the next period of a thousand years. Imagine a Christian government ruling the world. And Satan will be able to do nothing about it. He'll be shut up in a dungeon for the next thousand years, unable to communicate or influence anybody. And we don't know where that dungeon is. Only God does. He prepared the pit just as he also prepared hell for the devil and his angels. And you know, it's often said, I want to bring this up for just a second. God never intended human beings to go to hell. 
It was actually originally prepared for the devil and his angels. So, you know, remember, I'm not sure if we mentioned it, but back in chapter 12, when the devil was thrown out of heaven, he pulled a third of the heavenly hosts with him. A third of the, quote, stars of heaven followed him. It's a third of the angels. A third of the angels rebelled. We call them demons now, but they were once angels. And so this hell is reserved for them. It was never intended originally for humans. But now we come to the next vision, the fifth vision. And this is the vision that comes into play all about the millennium. So Satan's gone. The saints are reigning. But how many saints? And and who are these saints? Because John suddenly mentions that he sees thrones. Thrones have been mentioned um, up until this point in Revelation in heaven. But now we see thrones on the earth. And a throne is a ruler's seat. So John sees a number of people who have been given responsibility to rule on the earth under Christ. And he sees them on these thrones ruling. While there are sinners and sin still in the world, there will always be a need for judgment. And that's what this is a picture of. Things aren't perfect yet by this point in Revelation, even though Satan's been bound and the Antichrist and false prophet have been thrown into the lake of fire. There's this long period of time of a thousand years before a new heaven and a new earth is created and a new Jerusalem. And we'll get to that. And so for now, when we get to those new places, sin and sinful people will no longer be in the presence of God. But for now, justice will be done in this thousand year period, but it will be done in perfection, in righteousness. It will be done through Christ and his servants. Are you following me? You see, in the scriptures, in Romans 8, we're told that we will be co-heirs with Christ, that we will co-rule with Christ. What do you think that means in its fulfillment? We can read that in Romans 8, and it sounds all great, and we can quote that in church, but have you really sat and really meditated on what that actually means? To be a co-heir and co-rule with Christ. It's not just for here by operating in the authority given us through the power of his spirit, but it's for a future time. You see, our total inheritance that's granted to us has not yet been totally fulfilled. So far, we've received just that earnest down payment, that fullness of his spirit. But when Jesus Christ rules as king over the whole earth one day, we as co-heirs with him will be regarded as princes ruling under him based on how well we managed his affairs while he's been away. It's a perfect picture of the parable of the talents, which I encourage you to revisit in the Gospels. The parable of the talents. So these passages, they reference people who are ruling on thrones. And it actually references a few groups of people, of course, the thrones, and then a couple of others. And so what people tend to do here is divide this part of chapter 20 up into these three groups of people. But when you do a careful study of the Greek, it reveals actually that this is one large group that is being described. Then there's a couple of smaller groups underneath. The larger group, these people on thrones, is assumed to be overcomers. Those who take part in what John calls the first resurrection. 
and its overcomers who later inherit the new heaven and new earth, but not yet. And within that large group are subgroups, which includes martyrs and people who didn't take the mark of the beast. They're all still part of this particular large group. They're just being singled out, perhaps for what they've suffered or overcame. You see, these martyrs are those who did not take the number of the beast. Human courts, human judges executed them. They expelled them from the world. But now, in this reign upon the earth, this thousand years, the tables are turned. Now they are the ones sitting on thrones, sitting in judgment seats to judge unrighteousness. It's an incredible, incredible picture when you really sit with it. Reading this, regardless of which century a believer lived, when they're reading their Bible, when they're reading Revelation, it would have offered encouragement and comfort to them. Because no matter what we endure for Christ, even if it costs us our lives, there will come a time when all of that will change. We'll be ruling and administering God's justice for all the injustice. So hold on to that. No matter how dark this world gets, no matter what Christians are going to be pressed into, that is an encouragement for all of us. Truly, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. You know, Jesus made that same sort of promise to some fishermen when he said, you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Or Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, when he's talking about, when he's talking to the Christians in Corinth and he's, he's talking about Christians, how they were taking each other to court. He's like, stop doing that. Rather than, rather than taking your brothers and sisters to court, you know, try to settle your disputes in a very reasonable manner because he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matter? And so this comes up in scriptures, and we've got to understand how this all ties in, because all of the scriptures in Revelation, when you start bridging it together, what's taking place with things in the Old Testament, but also in the New, it all starts to make sense. What makes sense is we are in training now, not just for hardship and possible tribulation, but we are in training for the millennium. And there was a well-known woman who survived the Holocaust named Corrie Ten Boom, who then made it her mission to go all over the world to try to prepare saints for what's to come. And one of the things she always said was, we are in training for the millennium. Everything we do here right now, how we overcome, how we respond to our enemies, how you respond to a situation that seems unfair, whether you're gossiping, whatever it is you're doing. This is training for the millennium because we are going to be ruling over people. We are in training here to take the world over under Christ. That's a profound thought, don't you think? And so John makes it quite clear. There has been a resurrection limited to saints who come back and reign. Blessed and holy, he says, are those who have a part in that first resurrection. In other words, there are to be two resurrections. Very clearly stated here. 
one at the beginning of the millennium and one at the end. And this is a truth that many Christians seem to oppose, due again to all of the theological positions they take on the millennium, which is going to be part of that other episode. Many churches hold to a one general resurrection point of view. That And then, you know, everyone gets resurrected, then all of a sudden everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And a lot of them dismiss this thousand-year millennial reign. And honestly, that's what I was taught. However, when you really sit with the scriptures, simply sit with the scriptures, it's simply stated. There are two resurrections. Obviously, one for the righteous and then one for the unrighteous. John speaks of the first when he says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. You know, it's interesting. You find both Jesus in the Gospels and Paul in his letters confirming this very simple truth. Not everybody will be raised at once. However, everybody will be resurrected at some point. Everyone will get a body and live again. Daniel states this in Daniel 12 too, when he says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. But both will be raised. Jesus in the Gospel of John, I believe it's chapter 5, 28 and 29 maybe, he says, For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And Paul in Acts 24, 15 on trial for his life, he says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, here's something really interesting that Paul says that translators, modern day translators tend to miss. Paul says something very interesting in Philippians chapter 3. He says, If by any means I may attain unto the resurrection from the dead. And I just gave you a part of that. If by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That's Philippians 3 verse 11. In Greek, in this phrase, there's a little two-letter word, ek, ek. And he uses it twice every time he mentions it which correct, correctly translated means this. Paul wanted to attain unto the, quote, out-resurrection, out of the dead, end quote. That's the true Greek translation, but it makes no sense to me, right? It doesn't, at least, at least for me, I'm like, what? Say that again. The out-resurrection, out of the dead. What that means, the out-resurrection is actually out from among the dead. And he's describing Jesus's resurrection the same way. Out resurrection, out from the dead is how he describes it. It's a phrase that means not a general resurrection, but someone being taken out of the world of the dead and resurrection and resurrected, leaving other dead behind. And Jesus certainly did that. And Paul wanted to share in that. Are you following me? This Greek phrase that's in Philippians that Paul has stated for himself, but also stated for Christ and other places. It's a really interesting 
Greek translation that we miss. And he's saying that this is not a general resurrection, but being taken out of the world of the dead and resurrected, leaving other dead behind. Paul wanted to share in that what happened to Jesus. Jesus was taken, he was resurrected, taken out, taken out of the dead and made alive with Christ. And Paul wants to share in that in the first resurrection. That's why he shares with the church in Philippi his desire and hope to attain to that, to the out resurrection, out from among the dead. He wants to be raised as an overcoming saint in the first resurrection. That's why it was his motivation to press on, to run his race so that he could be part of that first group. He never gave up, even when he was beaten and flogged and shipwrecked and sick and everything in between. He never gave up. He pressed on. He removed the weight of the things that were holding him back and he pressed on towards the prize to be in that first resurrection, an overcoming saint at the time of the thousand year reign. It's something to ponder. And so to be clear, everyone is going to be in the resurrection. Everyone's going to get a new body. But what it's saying here is the resurrection of the righteous will be before the resurrection of the wicked. But everyone's going to be resurrected. Adolf Hitler, Nero, Mother Teresa, the Queen of England who just passed, everyone. And then we will all face Jesus and give an account for how we lived our life. There is no escape from God. But then this text in chapter 20, it darts away from this image of the thrones and it from this incredible picture to announce all of a sudden the thousand years is up. So we don't hear much about what takes place in that thousand years, except that there's saints ruling. But now the thousand years is up and Satan is being released. I mean, what on earth for? Why is God releasing him? Satan is allowed back into the earth? And as soon as he's released, immediately he takes advantage of the situation. Immediately he gathers himself a large army, a huge army, like the sand of the sea. It doesn't say how long it took him to gather the army or who he gathered. But he gathered himself a large army to march against the people of God, to march towards the beloved city, Jerusalem. He wants to destroy the government of Jesus Christ. And he's marching towards headquarters. This last satanic army, which incidentally is referenced as Gog and Magog, a reference to Ezekiel, gets nowhere. You know, Armageddon is not the last battle. Actually, that's really not even a battle. That's where he, you know, speaks and they all get smited. The last battle is Gog and Magog here in this verse. Although teachers of end times differ on this, some believe that the final battle against Jerusalem is actually Armageddon, not in the valley, but I'll let you just study that and decide that. (laughs) That's one of those trails you can go way down. Either way, this army is marching towards Jerusalem and God sends down fire from heaven and utterly destroys him. Finally, the fullness of satanic rule is now destroyed. But again, why release him to begin with? Well, 
Scripture doesn't say. And so from here on out, it doesn't matter whose book you're reading, whose podcast you're listening to, what person you're sitting under, all that people can do from this point forward to understand why he released Satan is to infer, to try to look at scripture as a whole and maybe take a good guess as to why God did this. So that's what we're going to do here. What I'm about to say is just an inference. And so you can take it or leave it. But after listening to several people and studying the word myself, I kind of agreed with some of the conclusions out there. When you take a step back and you look at what just took place, this thousand year millennial reign, these saints reigning on the earth, some teachers of the word have inferred that God has now given the world a thousand years to experience what it would be like had it remained sin free, like it was from the very beginning, from creation. They've experienced now a place of peace and health and prosperity, longer living. God has given them all of this, except the freedom to go on sinning. You see, what God is proving at the last, in this last part, perhaps, is this. That sin is not a product of our environment. It's still a product of the heart. People out there who declare that sin and evil is a byproduct of the conditions of the world, such as poverty or divorce or a number of things, and only if we make our environments right, people will be right. That's why many politicians and humanists today who basically believe that human nature is good and it's because of external influences on us that make us rebellious. Well, that's a lie. That's That's a lie, and God is showing them that. Look. I've made the world right, the environment's right. I've brought you perfect justice. But is your heart right? Sin is in the heart. It's rebellion against external influences. It's wanting to do our own thing. And so even though the millennial will be special, people will be enjoying the benefits of God, there will be this underlying resentment brewing in some people against not being able to still do our own thing. And perhaps this could be with the people who were left on the earth at the time. We don't know. And so perhaps God is going to show people once and for all that sin is about what's in your heart, not what's in your environment. So he releases Satan. And then it's as if history repeats itself. Satan comes with the same suggestion he had in the garden with Adam and Eve. Did God say, do you really want to obey him? Let me gather some of you together. Do you really want to live under that? It's deception. And it seems to work because he's able to gather an army, probably thousands and thousands of people willing to get rid of the Christian government. And again, it could be of people who were left on the earth after the army of Armageddon. We don't know. But God has now demonstrated so clearly the real issue. Do people want to truly live in his kingdom or not? Do they want to live under his rule or not? Because this thousand years was just a temporary time period, 
Eternity is yet to come with the new earth, the new heaven, the new Jerusalem. It's almost like there's this grace period to figure some more things out. We see Christians struggling right now, today, with that same question. Do you really want to live under a biblical mandate? Because so many Christians have already turned from following the Bible. Many Christians, self-professing Christians, barely believe the Bible anymore. But that's the choice we all have. And it will sadly divide many of us from each other. Well, Satan is allowed to be let loose to demonstrate that there is still rebellion in the human heart. And it appears that this whole millennial scene is taking place on the old earth, the existing earth that our feet touch now. Although some commentators on the millennium, again, our next episode, say they're, uh, they're reigning from earth because they don't like the... Imp- These commentators say they're not reigning on earth because they don't like the implication of that word reigning on earth. So they assume that everybody's reigning from heaven. So there's, (laughs) it'll, we'll get to that. But it's necessary when you look at what God has done and built in this thousand year reign, it's necessary to do this because it's all a preparation for judgment day, which is the scene that unfolds next. See, we're going to have a choice to make, and it appears we still have that choice, or whoever is here will have that choice in the thousand-year reign on the earth. And then once that time is up, and the people have finally been weeded out of who is really going to be devoted to Christ, then Judgment Day reveals itself. And it says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. So we see this scene return to these resurrected, two groups of resurrected people. Only now, in verse 11, we discover that earth, the earth that we were just reigning on for the thousand years, and heaven have fled away at his mere presence. So now everything that was old is gone. And both groups of people, the resurrected before the millennium, the resurrected after, all people, small and great, are now standing before God. And there is nothing else around them. There is one thing left to do before the last two chapters of Revelation unveil the new heaven and new earth. And it's that that these two groups of people, they need to be sorted out. They need to be separated like the weed and the tares. Those who are ready to go into vision seven, which is in 21, which is the new universe. And then there will be a group of people who are not ready for that. There are those who are going to be willing to live under the rule and kingdom of God and those who are not. And so the stage is set for this final day of judgment. Everything has culminated here. And God in his tremendous righteousness even built in a thousand years to figure it all out, for people to figure it all out. But it says here that even the sea gives up its dead. Think about that. You got things like the Titanic. You've got sunken warships, other shipwrecks. You've got tsunamis. 
The sea will give up its dead. Everywhere will give up its dead. And we will all be standing before the judgment seat. And then the books are opened. And there's multiple books mentioned in the Bible. I'm not going to go into those right now. But there is one in particular that he states. And it's one that holds the life record of each and every person. Well, they all hold the life record, but there's one in particular that is that book of life. Whether or not someone is written in the book of life to be joined with God in eternity. Everything that has not been erased will be there. And it gets erased by our confession of sin in our faith in Christ. And thanks be to God that one of his precious promises is, your sins I will remember no more. Through Jesus Christ and our giving our lives to him, we have that promise. We are the ones that tend to hold on to our sin. But friends, once we confess it, God forgives and forgets. He no longer remembers it from the east to the west. And so he opens his books. And again, one of them is the book of life. And if anyone's name is not in that book, it really would be probably better if they had never been born. Because now, it's they face a life of torment. Jesus doesn't send people to hell, friends. He throws them there, as it says in this chapter. Do you know that we learn more about hell? We have learned the most about hell from Jesus himself in the Gospels. And when he talked about it, He referred it to the deep valley that was a five-minute walk from the south gate of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. It's a terrible place. It's where they conducted the pagan sacrifices of children and more, where even the king of Israel, Manasseh, killed his own son to the god Moloch. God cursed that valley through Jeremiah. Jeremiah cursed it. It became the garbage dump of Jerusalem, not just for trash, but sewage too. That's why the gate on the south side of Jerusalem is called the Dung Gate, or it was called the Dung Gate. It's this valley, the same valley, the deepest part of it, the darkest part where Judas went and found a tree off of a cliff to hang himself. And we all know the rope broke and his gut spilled on the ground and the field was called the Valley of Blood. It's all part of that Hinnom Valley. And Jesus said, you want to know what hell is like? Look there where the worm never dies and the fire goes out. And that's what's taking place at the judgment. People are divided, some to everlasting life and others to everlasting torment. But through it all, God is absolutely just. Believers, we are justified by faith in Christ, but we will be judged by our works unto rewards. We are either doing works on this earth that Paul says um, will stand through fire or we're going to be doing works that are going to be burnt up. But our rewards are based on those. But either way, we're all judged. 1 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's not called the judgment seat of, quote, God that is going to judge us. 
It's the judgment seat of Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Human beings will be judged by a human being. (laughs) Jesus, the very one who has known the pressures we live under, who has been homeless, who had an illegitimate birth, who had no money, who was accused of a crime he never committed, who was falsely executed. He gets us. But on the other hand, he can also see inside of us into the human heart. Anyone not found in the book of life, in his book, will be thrown, not sent, thrown into the lake of fire. It's a really somber thing to think about. But then afterwards, after everything's been meted out, after the earth and the heaven, they're gone. Now all unrighteousness is gone. Now the true overcomers, those who truly want to live and be under the anointed one himself. Now everything is ready to be made new. And that's chapter 21. That's where all of a sudden we start to see the most beautiful picture unfold of this whole new universe that he creates where everyone can live in it as intended as it was, as it was intended from the very, very beginning. And in between that, there will be an episode on the thousand year reign as it pertains to the different beliefs out there on it. And you are more than welcome to tune into that if it interests you. Or you can skip it and go straight to 21. Either way, we got through 20. Lots of details. I hope it gives you some things to ponder. Again, don't take my word for it. Please sit with the Lord. Please ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and revelation. Please sit and just um, pray. But I just pray that maybe it it, um, encourages your heart in some way. And until we meet again, God bless. (music) 